We're not going to Children's Church. Would you please open with me to uh, Matthew chapter 5? The other day I was reading an illustrious academic journal, the, uh, the Huffington Post, and uh, I was reading an article on happiness, and uh, heading this article was a quote from Aristotle, um, a well-known quote. He says, happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. And uh, Aristotle certainly meant much more than what we mean by the emotional experience of happiness. And yet, uh, he makes a point. And in his view, the happy life is the good life. It's a life of virtue. And according to Aristotle, we will find our greatest good in pursuing happiness as defined in the philosophers. Well, the Huffington Post article argues that your emotional happiness is what you need to keep in view. And uh, that there's a scientifically verified ripple effect when you're happy because it makes other people happy and that makes other people happy and so your happiness can affect people on the other side of the world by degrees and so uh, to boil it down if you want to love your neighbor in the most profound way possible find what makes you happy and go do that thing that sounds nice I do not read the Huffington Post often I'm just going to let you know that right now so please do not be questioning the rest of the sermon but be honest though if I were to ask you to take and put into a clump sadness, grief, and mourning, okay, and put them in a package, how high on your list of things that make you happy do those things go? Now, I know as Christians, we don't buy into the American dream of getting while well, the getting's good, and we would never say that we live for the pursuit of happiness. It's not our chiefest aim in life. But generally, we do try to do things that make us happy and avoid things that bring us sadness. And I think that's pretty normal. And, you know, being honest, from a biblical perspective, sadness and grief and mourning are things that are a direct result of the fall. They were not things as they were meant to be. So we generally aim for happiness, and we want to think biblically and be guided by the scriptures in all we do. But no matter how committed we are to biblical thinking... Uh, we still run into a pause when we sit at the feet of Jesus and let him define for us what the good life or the blessed life actually looks like. And so we're in Matthew 5. Whenever I have the opportunity to preach, I've, I started preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, so we're just a few sermons in, and we're looking at the Beatitudes. And today we're on the second Beatitude in verse 4. But I'll read verses 1 through 4, and we'll dive into this idea of mourning and see if we can figure out something about blessedness and the good life, even as it pertains to mourning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I want to be up front. This sermon is not meant to induce depression, okay? And I need you to know that. We are looking at mourning, and it's going to be intense. 
but that is not without purpose. Jesus' aim here is not to drive us away from him in despair, but drive us to him for comfort and blessedness. We must know this. In fact, I'm going to put the cards out on the table right now. The main idea of Jesus here in this beatitude is that gospel mourners, and we're going to flesh that out, gospel mourners are those who go to the Savior for comfort. So we're raised with this question right off the bat. What kind of mourning is Jesus talking about? What does he mean when he talks about those who mourn? There are a lot of people who mourn in the world, but we want to know what Jesus is talking about. Is he talking about everybody who mourns or his only particular type of mourner? And the fact that we're in the Sermon on the Mount is itself the clue to figuring out what Jesus means. So going a few sermons back, and this is going back a ways because I don't preach all that often, um, the Sermon on the Mount is not about Jesus showing people how to enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not as if Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 through 7, if you will live like this, you will have the kingdom of heaven. That's to get the order completely wrong. Jesus is talking about what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. What life under Jesus' lordship actually does to a person. The people that Jesus has in view in the Sermon on the Mount are those who have already experienced the full and free grace that he gives through the gospel. And then the Sermon on the Mount starts to get into nitty-gritty detail about what happens to that person as the lordship of Jesus works itself out in their life. And the main point of the whole sermon, all three chapters of it, is that those who are saved live like their Savior. Okay, those who are saved live like their Savior. And there are eight Beatitudes here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that are the gateway into kingdom life. Starting with blessed are the poor in spirit and working all the way down to blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And there's a logical progression to the Beatitudes so that you take one after another and the order actually means something. Jesus isn't just throwing together a lot of ideas of blessedness and then starting wherever. He's describing the character and the heart of those who are made new in Christ. And poverty of spirit is the logical place to begin because it's, as we saw in the last sermon I preached on this, it is the heart of a person who knows that they have nothing in their spiritual account to bring to God for salvation. They have nothing to contribute. There's only a massive debit filled with sin, a burden of debt that they could never pay. And it is when a person embraces that reality about their own soul that they're in a place to come to Jesus and say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's poverty of spirit. And it's that person who has a recognition of their own insufficiency that recognizes that what they do have to their name, their sins, the thing that they actually can look at and call their own, it is that person who mourns over those things because those are the things that grieve the Jesus who they would follow. And so poor in spirit is referring to spiritual poverty and the Beatitudes have a distinctly spiritual flavor to them. And so it would make sense that as we try to figure out what Jesus means by mourners, that it would be talking about spiritual mourners. Those who mourn in a way that honors the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ. And what grieves Jesus? Sin grieves Jesus. The kind of mourning that Jesus means is, is what I'm going to call gospel mourning or uh, mourning over sin. 
It's mourning over sin. And the word Jesus uses for mourn is, of all the words in the New Testament that describe grief and mourning, this is the most intense. It's one that gets to the very heart and depth of mourning. It, it grabs a person to the core, and it, it, it characterizes their whole life at that moment. As uh, the 20th century expositor John Stott says of this in relation to the first beatitude, this is the second. Spiritual mourning is the second stage of spiritual blessing. It is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another to grieve and to mourn over it. Or in more theological language, confession is one thing, contrition is another. This is the kind of mourning that is part of true repentance. And that is what Jesus has in view, is true repentance. Recognizing the depth of sin and its sinfulness. And then turning from it and fleeing to Jesus for all that he is to us in the gospel. This is the kind of mourning and grief that the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. He had been to Corinth to confront some false teachers there and to confront some major, major, major problems that had arisen in the annual Corinthian church meeting, like messed up stuff, okay? And there was a guy there who had stood up and made a very public spectacle at Paul's expense, um, declaring that he was a false apostle. That he actually didn't have a right to say the things that he was saying. All utterly untrue and spiritually horrible things. And the church didn't do anything about it. And so Paul writes to them a letter in between First and Second Corinthians called, uh, referred oftentimes as the severe letter. As we don't have a record of it, but we know it was a big deal. And that's the letter that Paul's talking about here when he's reacting to their reaction to his rebuke. And they responded well, and he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, not all grieving is created equal. Not all mourning is the same. Jesus is not talking about all kinds of mourning. He's talking about the kind of mourning that is part of repentance that leads to life and joy and fullness and blessedness, which is why he says, blessed are those who mourn. There's no regret in this type of mourning. It may be intense, but it is not crushing. It is actually the path to joy. And it's important here to recognize, and I want to make sure we know this, that this kind of mourning, we can't do it to ourselves. We can't produce it on our own. We can't fabricate it or do any kind of mantra or turn the thermostat up high enough to be able to produce it. This is something that only comes as a product of the new birth of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, of God showing up in the soul of man and saying, life through Jesus. Jesus was having a conversation with one of Israel's religious leaders, Nicodemus, who at this point didn't get it. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Well, those who mourn in the way that Jesus is talking about 
are the poor in spirit who have the kingdom of heaven. And if no one can have the kingdom of heaven except he be born again, we must be born again. We must have a spiritual pulse. This must be a work of God in us. And where God has worked, mourning over sin follows. Every time. And probably the chiefest kind of mourning that we will experience as believers, the most profound mourning that we will feel is a mourning over personal sin. So mourning over personal sin. I've done lots of mourning over other people's sin, especially when it irritates me. Um, but the better kind is the kind where we look at our own soul and take accurate inventory in the light of God's word and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we recognize that we have grieved our God by the ways that we have turned from him in thought, word, and deed, by the things we've done and the things we've left undone, as we often pray. This is the type of mourning that the Apostle Paul experienced regularly. Would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 7? I want to take a look at this together. A chapter that is so visceral in its dealing with sin that many commentators think that Paul was writing about his former life before Christ. But we know by the way that Paul writes that that's not true. Paul's using a, a present personal pronoun, I. He says, I am doing this. I experienced this. I currently am going through this experience in regard to my sin. And he talks about delighting in the law of God and serving Christ. Well, he wouldn't be saying that if he weren't a believer or if he was talking about a time when he wasn't a believer because no unbelievers serve Christ in their minds. No unbelievers love the law of God, truly. And so Paul, the most mature of apostles, the, 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 the great missionary of church history, the author of however many New Testament epistles, depends on who you think wrote Hebrews, um, he is the one who's talking about his daily experience as a mature Christian. And look, let's begin in verse 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So he's saying God's standard of righteousness is good. So now it is no longer I who do it. He's talking about the new man. It's no longer I, the new Paul, made new as a creature in Christ. It's not I who am doing this. It's sin that dwells within me. He understands he's still responsible for his sins, but he's saying this is coming from the stuff I hate, the sinful nature that I'm still battling every day. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find this to be a law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Here's, here's Paul the mourner, okay? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Friends, Paul was a mourner over his sin. He, he was the same apostle who wrote to Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. And these two things are not mutually exclusive. 
There is this entire gospel category for joy and mourning at the same time. And that's what Jesus has in view here. This is David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who, when he was confronted with his sin about Bathsheba and taking, uh, taking Uriah's wife and having him murdered, this was his response as a spiritual mourner. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He was honest with God about his condition. He was desperate, he grieved, and he fled to God, not in despair, but for comfort. And so he says in verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. See friends, what Paul in the New Testament, what David in the Old Testament are modeling for us is that those who are saved see that their salvation has cost their savior his sorrow, his being crushed, his being crucified to death. That's what our sin costs Jesus. And we grieve over the fact that that is who we are apart from our Lord. And we mourn over our sin. That is what Jesus has in view. But we can't stop there because that's not the only thing that Jesus means by mourning. He also knows and would have us understand from scripture that mourning is not just over personal sin, but over corporate sin and over societal sin. Friends, we are embedded in a world that is soaked to the core with sin. And that has an effect on the soul of the righteous. The godly grieve over what grieves God's heart. The Psalms are filled with it. And how could we not? We as a new creature love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates, which is why Paul hates his sin, even as he continues to struggle with it and fail and daily go back to the gospel and find comfort and peace. This is what Lot, Abraham's nephew, who for his many issues, his many issues, okay, I'm not even going to go there, still is described in terms of mourning over sin by Peter. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says that God rescued Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Friends, Lot, he may have had some issues, but he was a man whose hope was in God. And with the righteousness of God, was grieved over the place that he had chosen to go. Poor real estate choice. But yet he was grieved over the sin he saw every single day. He was tormented, it said. This is the grief that we see Ezra express in his reaction to the sins of God's people who coming back from captivity in Babylon and Persia should have learned a thing or two and yet who are continuing to go back to the very sins that got them to Babylon in the first place. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. 
the leaders of Israel had led in sin. And it was corrupting the people of God. And as soon as I heard that, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. I've never been there yet. I haven't gone that far in my grief, but Ezra did. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Morning. Why? Because the people had made light of righteousness and holiness of God and had gone in in sins that were an offense before him. And this is, folks, what Jesus did. He had no personal sin over which to mourn, but he had come to earth. The incarnation happened because he had a whole lot of sin in the world to deal with in a saving way, in a redemptive way. And as he was coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, being hailed as the king only to be crucified at the end of the week, he saw Jerusalem in its unbelief. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He was looking 40 years ahead, seeing the Romans coming in to tear down the city and literally leave not one stone on another. And if you've ever read first-person accounts of the siege, perhaps in Josephus, it'll make you queasy. It made me queasy to, to see the things that not only the Romans were doing, but especially the things that the Jews were doing to each other within the walls of Jerusalem. It's disgusting. Jesus saw that sin. And he grieved over it because he knew that that was a result of their rejection of the Messiah. God's redeemed people have always grieved over the evil around them. And it has driven them not only to Christ, but to take action against it. That's how Wilberforce and his friends saw, by God's grace, the abolition of the slave trade in England. It's why in Rome, slavery and the gladiator games were undermined. It's why the church went out to take in children who were left out for first century abortions and draw in orphans. They have grieved throughout the centuries as the world has gone on from sin to sin. kind of Jesus that the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about is basically in a word friends it's repentance for our own sins and grieving for the sins around us and I'd like to let you know five marks of true mourning the true mourning that Jesus has in mind we want to know what true mourning is and what it's not because we're we're not always so good at mourning in the true sense but we do sometimes find ourselves really good at mourning in a false sense. And so we want to know what the real thing is, the kind of thing that Jesus gives to us here. The first thing is that true mourning is genuine. It's not hypocritical. It's genuine. It's, it's, it's like David saying, I have no excuse. This is it. This is me. This is my whole situation. Lord, have mercy. Whereas Saul, David's predecessor, was only concerned with his own saving face. In 1 Samuel 15, 30, he'd been caught in disobedience to God. 
and sparing a king that he was supposed to have killed, taking a bunch of animals he was supposed to have slaughtered. And he comes up with some kind of spiritual excuse for the whole thing. And then when Samuel tells him that the kingdom is going to be taken from him because he did not follow the Lord, Saul's response is simply this. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Was he concerned with worship? No. Was he concerned with looking like a good worshiper so that he could stay as the king of Israel revered? Yeah, hypocritical. But true mourning, true mourning is genuine. True mourning is also God-centered. It's not self-centered. Self-centered mourning looks at the self and is grieved because something has gone wrong with us and for us or is not according to our plans. But true mourning looks at God and says the type of thing that the psalmist says in 119, 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Because people do not keep your law. It is a God-centered mourning that looks at God as the supreme one and sees all sin in relation to him, whether it's our own or the sins of others, and mourns, for God's glory has been defiled. And it's not content to be a vague kind of mourning that just generally throws out, I've done some wrong things. No, that gets particular. That's a particular type of mourning. This is the kind of thing we saw Daniel do as he confessed his own sin and the sins of Israel when he was in Persia. He knew the time of the exile was almost up. Jeremiah had prophesied it. And he sat there taking spiritual inventory. And he said, Lord, we have ignored your prophets. We have ignored you and acted as if you were not our God. We have ignored your law and acted as if we were a law unto ourselves. He got specific about sin, not vague. And friends, true mourning is a, is a purifying mourning. It's a purifying mourning that bears fruit, which is why when the Pharisees came to the river to see John the Baptist, John the Baptist said to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If we want to know if repentance is true, we need to see if it bears fruit. Many people repent falsely and go on living as if nothing had ever happened, as if they never mourned. But no, true repentance drives us to the Jesus who purifies us. As John says in 1 John 3, we who hope in him will purify ourselves even as he is pure. Because he's coming and we're going to see him as he is and we will be like him. It has a purifying effect. And whereas false mourning drives us away from God in the kind of despair that says, oh, I'm not worthy, I can't come before God, and get stuck in sin. And friends, I know there are some in here who, that, who are there who get stuck in sin and won't go to God for healing because they feel that they're just not worthy and that God is angry with them. Realize that true mourning is humble and relational, not proud and isolating. God defines mourning in terms of relationship with himself. He's calling to hear his voice tenderly saying to draw near to him. As we saw in James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It doesn't sound like a God who doesn't want anything to do with you. It sounds like a God who loves you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's addressing the kind of person who makes light of sin, who ignores the grace of God, who thinks that they can have Jesus' name attached to their belt and get into heaven, but they don't really have to concern themselves with holiness here. And he's saying to those people, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not saying to the Christian who is intently seeking God, go around with a frown on your face and be the most dour person you can be so that the rest of the world will see what church is like and want to come. Why aren't they coming? So we miss the point. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What can be more exalting than being in union with the Jesus who's at the right hand of God? The Jesus who says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We have an abundant life, Jesus. He's not out to make us dour or despairing or isolated from God. He's out to call us in true repentance to be joined with him by faith and to experience joy to the full. Which is why we're about to look at why mourners are blessed. But before we do, I want to simply ask this question. We understand what the mourning is that Jesus is talking about, but why should we mourn? What are the reasons that we should concern ourselves with mourning? I'm kind of a black and white person on certain things, and this is one of them. I go, hey, Jesus says it. He says, blessed are those who mourn. We're supposed to mourn. That's kind of, that's all I need. Like, I get that. So there it is. And so if you're like me, there you go. Jesus says to mourn, so be a mourner. That's a good reason. But as I was reading through one of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, as he was talking about this beatitude, and in classic Puritan fashion, he spends more time in his book on the beatitudes on this beatitude than all the other ones. So, but he said something so profound. Um, he said that mourning for sin now prevents mourning for sin in hell. See, friends, there's this myth that we can either be a mourner or not. No. We will mourn. The, the question is when and where. We will either mourn now for our sins and have life with Jesus on the road to heaven, or we will laugh now, take sin lightly now, ignore Jesus now, end up in hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and mourning to the full. Okay? So make no mistake, you will be a mourner. The question is when and where. Jesus, in Luke's record of this Sermon on the Mount, in Luke's record of the Beatitudes, Jesus' Beatitude here says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. A day of reckoning is coming, and God's patience and kindness has been extended to this world, and they've taken advantage of it to ignore him and think that there won't be a day of reckoning. 2,000 years is a long time. Where's the Savior now? Okay, but just so you know, Jesus told us what's going to happen if we don't mourn now. That's another reason why we should mourn over our sin and over the sins of the world. But I would put it to you that the most profound reason, the deepest, most abiding reason that we ought to mourn is because of who God is. It's because of who God is. We have a God who is holy and glorious and worthy and kind and who has given us a gospel and when we recognize that our sin is an affront to the glory of God and a smear in his direction, that instead of displaying the glory that God has created us to show the world, we would hide it under a bushel and cover it with sin, we should mourn. 
When we see that God's holiness is affronted by our unholiness, we should mourn. And when we see that a God who is worthy of our love and devotion and affection because he has poured out his love on us in full measure, when we would choose sin and ignore that God, we should mourn. And when we understand that God is kind to us, not angry, and that that kindness is for a reason, and that reason is repentance, that we would have full relationship with him without hindrance, we should mourn. Paul says, do you presume on the, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kind, his, he is wooing us to put away our sins and to enjoy him. And this is why Jesus came, that we might be able to. If we would look at the gospel and see the cross and see Jesus on that cross, in agony, crying out in Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass, but your will be done. And that Jesus goes to the cross in order to deal with my sin that I take so lightly? Should we not mourn over our sin? Yes, we should. Because that's the bloodied Savior who rose from the dead, made an end of it all, and said, blessed are you who mourn. Why? Why are you blessed if you would mourn over your sin and over the sins of this world? Well, friends, he tells us, gospel mourning for sin brings gospel comfort from the Savior. That's the point. We've turned a corner, and I'm glad you haven't left yet, because we're not going to talk about mourning now so much as we are going to talk about the comfort and the blessedness that come to us through the avenue of gospel mourning. Mourners are blessed because they are comforted by the very Savior to whom they have fled in their mourning. See, the word blessed heads every single beatitude here. And it is a profound Greek word that is so rich. In fact, one of my favorite definitions of blessedness is, is rich in the benefits of God's grace. Rich or as I said before, fit to burst in the benefits of God's grace. God has so much grace for you and for me in the gospel. And we are blessed when we come as impoverished, mourning people who know that our only hope, our only sufficiency, our, our only joy is found in Christ. And we are those who are so profoundly blessed and given abiding joy and fullness in the grace of God a God who never turns us away, but always welcomes us. Friends, the reason mourners are blessed is that they shall be comforted. And one of the great mistakes that we can make, and I, as a recovering legalist, need to constantly remember this, is that our trust is not in our mourning, as if somehow we shed a tear and, oh, good, I am alive. I have shed a tear for my sin. I mean, serious, have you experienced that where you actually do shed a tear over your sin and you think, oh, that was good. But, the, but the, the sticky wicket about the whole thing is that it's good to mourn over our sin, but, but we really need to be careful not to find our comfort in the fact that we're mourning. No, friends, we ever only find our comfort in our Savior, in our Savior. It's always Jesus, Okay. So put our trust in him and not in the morning, and we will find what it is to have true joy. 
If we get stuck mourning in our sin and we are left there without moving to the Savior for comfort and forgiveness, then all we have is depression, and we should. But that's not what Jesus would have us do. He brings us all the way home. And his promise to all who mourn over sin and to come to him by faith is comfort. And friend, I want to pause and ask, have you fled to Christ for the comfort of forgiveness with nothing in your hands but him alone as your only hope? Because every other way to God that's out there, as if there were any other ones, gets stuck on trying to make up for the sin. But Jesus, in, biblical, in the biblical gospel, says, come to me and I will give you rest. Don't try to earn it. Just trust in me and me alone. Turn from the sin and find my grace. Because if you have never mourned over your sin and gone to the Savior in faith, what's stopping you? You don't need to come down the aisle. The way is wide open and Jesus is there. And his promise to you, it's always been the same. In fact, he, when he went into the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry to help the people make sense of the fact that he had shown up, he goes back to Isaiah, and he opens to Isaiah 61, and he says this. This is, this is why he came. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God is glorified, friend, in your comfort. As you mourn and go where that mourning leads you, you will find comfort. You will find it now. You will find it now. Not just in the future, as if you could just stomach it through the rest of this life, get to the end and go, oh, good, I crossed Jordan. Here is my comfort. No, Jesus gives you that comfort today. You don't have to wait for it. We left Paul off grieving and mourning over his sin. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? But what does he say next? He doesn't even skip a verse. He says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad? Oh, I'm so glad. We have comfort now as we mourn over our sin. And then, yes, we have comfort then. And it's going to get even better because there is going to be no more struggle with sin. The Romans 7 struggle is a thing for this world, folks. The Romans 8 thing, where all creation is groaning for the renewal, the renewal is coming. And so, in the end, we see this. This is the final word, folks. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Oh, that will be good. We're on the way. We are on the way. And now on the way, we have sin to deal with daily. Jesus, 
Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, and he, and he presents it as a regular, ongoing, present thing, as we saw Paul experienced in Romans 7. And so I want to finish here by giving you the title to my new book, Seven Not-So-Secret Secrets of Good Morning. I'm just kidding. I'm not writing a book. But if I did, that's not a bad title. Um, here are seven not-so-secret secrets of good morning, okay? Things that will help us to keep us on track. First, realize that the Christian life is a life of ongoing mourning for sin and joy in the Savior. Remember, it's not about getting bogged down in the sin. It's about confronting the sin with honesty, grieving over it, right on to grace. The Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance and faith. Faith-filled repentance as Sinclair Ferguson says, we are penitent, penitent believers and believing penitents all the way to glory. This is normal. And that's going to help you if you realize that the, that the grief you feel over sin every day, as hard as it is to experience, yeah, that's the normal Christian life. That things are going according to plan. Better to be mourning over sin than not to be mourning over it. Second, be specific when you confess your sins. Be specific. This is not always easy, but if we do it within the context of the gospel, it is always good. One of my personal heroes, William Wilberforce, as he was getting to know Christ more and more, he would keep a daily record of his sins at the end of the day and see where he had fallen again. And Oh, I need to do better. Lord, help me. And he would go into the next day, and he was renowned as being one of the most joyful people in the lives of those who knew him. But he was also very serious about his sin. He mourned over it. And, and he's, a, he's a guy I look at and I go, ah, that's an example of the type of mourner I want to be. Because I don't want to sacrifice the joy, and I don't need to. Jesus intends us to be joyful mourners, to be cheerful Christians, not making light of the things and the frivolous things that this world has to offer. He's not talking about cheap happiness. The world doesn't know anything about true happiness. He's talking about the deep and abiding joy that comes from the full life that Jesus comes to give. So be specific when you confess your sins, because then you'll specifically grow. Okay? And those things will become less and less. They'll be more a thing of the past as you grow in holiness. Third, do not look at your sins as if that were anything to save you. No, look at your Savior. If you look at your sins and then go from there, you end up missing the, the tidings of comfort and joy. We don't, we don't sing that song at Christmas because of our sins. We sing it because a Savior showed up to deal with our sins. And so look at your Savior, and you'll be able to mourn goodly, if you will. Fourth, guard against making light of your sin, or, or, or anybody's for that matter. We don't, we don't have to diminish sin. Now, I'll be honest, one of the ways that I'm most at risk of doing this is by getting humor out of things that really aren't funny at all. And in our culture, this is becoming more and more a thing that we have to recognize, is that um, as we're trying to navigate wisdom and maybe our entertainment choices or whatever the case may be, how we engage with culture and to what extent, which is fine, let's use wisdom and guard against making light of the things that grieve God. Because if the, if the devil can get us to laugh at the things that Jesus died for and to actually find true humor in it, 
then, then we're one step closer to making light of it in our own hearts. And that's usually not where we struggle. We need, we need to struggle for seeing sin as it truly is. And so as you're seeking wisdom from the Lord on how to walk as a faithful Christian in this world, and that's complicated, folks. Jesus doesn't pretend it's not. But he's glorified in our seeking wisdom on it. Then let's guard against making light of our sins. We can be honest about sin because we have a Savior who is honest about it. And he cried out, honestly, it is finished. So we need to guard ourselves. And we also need to meditate on the gospel. This is the fifth thing. We need to meditate on the gospel. Friends, if we see Jesus in the gospel for us, and we see exactly what it took in order for us to have salvation from the things that we have done and do, then we won't so lightly pursue sin, and we will more devotedly pursue Jesus. And then meditate on God. Friends, I think so many of our spiritual ills would be cured if we truly stopped looking at theology as much as we looked at God, where we get the true theology. If we would, if we would rediscover God's beauty in his holiness, if we would study his love, if we would study his wrath, another attribute of God, and we would study who he is and his goodness in our lives, then we won't be so quick to cheapen sin, and we will be more quick to mourn it, and we will have much deeper comfort and abiding joy. And then finally, folks, and I'd say this is probably a bottom line and a good place to leave this sermon, pray for a mourning heart. Oh, I've prayed that so much this week, because um, I've been, this, this year, to be honest with you, I haven't grieved over my sins as much as I should. I had a rather apathetic struggle in the spiritual life, and it's been difficult, and so I often find myself praying, Lord, just help me to mourn and help me to, help me to care about the things that you care about, because I believe that I am yours, and I believe that you will hold me fast. So please do that. He delights to answer those kind of prayers. They're honest, desperate prayers, and that's exactly the kind of poor of spirit type of stuff that Jesus loves. So pray for a mourning heart, and, and pray for a joyful heart. And you will find a faithful Savior answering you. Friends, blessed are you who are mourning and who mourn and who will mourn over your sin and the sins around you because you will run into the arms of a Jesus who embraces you and will comfort you with his love and his cleansing. And as Psalm 126 says, which we're about to sing, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for our precious Jesus who, taking the full weight of our sins into account and putting them on himself through his agony for us, rose from the grave victorious, having made an end of the things that you have called us now to mourn and to find comfort in your mercy about. Jesus, help us. Help us to mourn as you would have us mourn, to grieve over our broken world, the way that you grieved about Jerusalem, and to remember that the greatest travesty, the most grievous thing of all in this world, for all the, the horrible things that are happening uh, to the unborn or to people enslaved, uh, the brokenness of our culture, Lord, that the grievous thing of all is, is that people don't believe in you. Help us to grieve that. 
and to move through our grief, not only to your comfort, but also to your action. That we would declare to this world who has cheap happiness, the only true path to happiness and to the good and blessed life. And it's for your glory and for your sake that we pray these things by faith, trusting that you who hear us according to your will will answer us by that same will. Amen.